All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm pleased to speak to you from New York City on this the 21st day of May, 2019. And as always, I'd like to remind you that I am the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and you can sub- subscribe to that by going to miningstocks.com miningstocks.com or call our office here in New York during normal work hours 718-457-1426 718-457-1426 always like to put in a plug for my friend Chen Lin uh, chenpicks.com is where you need to go to purchase his newsletter what is Chen buying what is Chen selling and of course we always like to put in a plug for Michael Oliver OliverMSA.com he'll be with us in just a few seconds from now uh, I do want to thank all of you for listening making this one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. And I'd like to invite you to continue sending along your questions and comments. So whatever you have to say about this show, send them on to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. And we do want to thank our sponsors because without them, we, there would be no show. They make it economically viable. Merrimont Resources, Great Bear Resources, Klondike Gold, Novo Resources, RN Resources, and Strike Point. Gold are the sponsors for today's show. I've titled today's show, An Inevitable Debt Bubble Apocalypse, Why, When, and What's the Solution? Keith Weiner, Peter Talman, and Michael Oliver are return guests this week. Well, Keith Weiner says that interest rates are inevitably heading lower. Otherwise, interest, rate, interest expense will quickly spiral out of control. He believes deflationary credit implosion will hit the U.S., uh, be that the U.S. will be the last co- the last country to really get hit by this deflationary implosion, meaning that the U.S. dollar and the U.S. will be the last uh, the U.S. dollar will be the last fiat currency standing. So I plan to ask Keith to review the mechanism for why he believes that declining interest rates are inevitable. I'm not sure that Michael Oliver, who we'll be talking to in a few minutes, uh, necessarily agrees with that. Uh, but uh, what? We'll ask him anyway. We'll ask Keith to explain that. But more importantly, what I want to get from Keith today is uh, what the monetary metals company is providing. They're providing a yield. You know, it's long been said that the reason you don't want to own gold is because it doesn't provide any yield. Well, of course, what they forget to tell you is that the dollar has lost 90, I don't know, 97% of its value since 1913, and gold has kept its value. Uh, They never tell you that. But anyway, Monetary Metals has come along uh, and provided a product that you can lease your gold, your physical gold, and get as much as you're going to get on U.S. Treasuries for short-term uh, duration, a, a year or less. 
So uh, we'll ask Keith to explain that to us when he comes on in the second half of today's show. Peter Talman of Gold uh, Klondike Gold will be with me after the first commercial break, and that is really an exciting story, I believe, uh, if you follow the exploration companies, because what uh, Peter Talman and his crew have discovered, at least they believe they have discovered, are the structural controls for the high-grade gold. Now, we've had a lot of disseminated gold, which is good from an economic perspective. Many times, if you have the high-grade veins and there's low grades surrounding those high-grade veins, it can be very important for the economics of a project. But it seems as though now Klondike, after two or three years of exploration, have finally figured out where the high-grade stuff is. So Peter will be along to talk to us during uh, the, after the first commercial break about Klondike Gold, and uh, right now we have Michael Oliver with us to talk about uh, the markets. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. Always good to be back. You know, every day we are given reasons uh, by the mainstream media why movements, for the movements in the stock market, and all markets, you know, somebody, talking heads have to have some story to tell. Uh, Today's stocks are heading higher, supposedly, because early, uh, because Mr. Trump apparently has given some sort of a reprieve. Uh, in, in terms of its, uh, in terms of tariffs, um, but uh, I know that you don't really pay too much attention to the to the reasons given. You just like to look at the uh, at the at the um, can, at the collective wisdom of the markets, and as you see it, and as you work with your momentum and structural uh, structural uh, tools that you use. So, what are you seeing now with respect to the equity market, the S and P five hundred, for example? Well, uh, on the S&P, we called a downturn at 29.10 uh, two weeks ago when it came down from its third new high, 29.50, uh, you know, uh, earlier this month. And we thought the drop would probably uncover support for the time being in the low 2800s. And sure enough, they got, they got it down to the minuscule of the low 2800s, 2801. They didn't want to print that 2800 tick. It'd be three fifty-point downticks, and that would disturb them. And so we've been fighting, and we argued in the report that uh, when we got down to the low twenty-eight hundreds in the S and P, that the bulls not only better buy it here, but they better keep it north. They better not just uh-huh. rally and hover, because if they hover through the end of the month, which is only a week and a half away, and you find yourself here in the mid twenty-eight hundreds or even higher twenty-eight hundreds, but not back at the highs. You're going to inherit some numbers that come hit you in the face in June that could take you right back down again, uh, specifically some of the averages that they stopped in front of this month at the lows or stopped around. Those averages are moving up in June, and when you open the next month, uh, you better not be hovering where you are right now. I mean, you can flex your muscles all you want, but this is not a good place to be if you're long the S&P starting in June. Similarly, gold did the same thing opposite, almost on the same day. The mm-hmm. gold rallied up to its three-month average uh, on when it hit 1304 area early uh, last week, I think it was, uh, and that's about the same time coincident with the S and P hitting its low for the month. So I think it's not coincidental that they're trading inverse, not day to day, but more or less week to week. And I think June could uh, take gold right back up again. Right now, gold is is the funny thing. Gold is the weak element in the complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's acting weaker than silver. It's, it's certainly acting weaker than the, the gold mining uh, ETFs like GDX. Uh, they have a different tone about them. Silver and uh, now silver's been whacked some lately, but not comparable to gold quite. Uh, and uh, gold is pulled back to a price chart level that probably is exciting the bears. Mm-hmm. Specifically, <laughs> if you just look at June contract, it hit 1270 now three times from above. Normally, uh-huh. on a 
if you keep price charts and you're only a price chart watcher, when you come down to a triple bottom, it doesn't usually hold. Uh-huh. It's a strong suspicion you're going to ventilate on the downside. The problem is that when we look at silver and we look at GDX, they look momentum ripe to continue to turn up here, and probably with some violence if they cross certain levels, which aren't all that far above where we are now next week. Gold, meanwhile, looks like it's trying to have a tantrum, and they hit 1270 today, actually traded the 1269, and they didn't get any follow-through, you know, like a 1265 or 1260, a flush out, which we opened as a, as a possibility that they could do that. But we don't see sustainability. When we look at our momentum work, whether it's daily, weekly, monthly, whatever, we don't see the justification for this price weakness being sustainable or anything more than a little tantrum that spikes below recent lows and then hooks back up. So the issue now is, will the price guys manage to blow that triple bottom at 1270 and get some you know, more $5 down ticks or not? Mm-hmm. And it's interesting today that they hit it and they upticked some. <laughs> they, didn't go, they didn't go whoosh like we kind of suspected. Uh, yeah. So anyway, we're very pleased with the tone we see in GDX lately. It, it indicates, and I can't, you can't prove this, I don't know who's bid and the asks are, but uh, mm-hmm. there's a firm tone under the market. I have a sense that institutional money is moving into the gold mining sector, and I don't mean gold bug money, but I'm talking about large funds around the world that are right. reallocating to different categories, and mm-hmm. one of those categories is uh, gold miners. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly must be a little a little bit disconcerting to the bears that they couldn't break through to the downside on at twelve seventy. Yeah, give them a couple of days, but you know, and even if they do, we we still assess that it will be a spike. It won't be a sustainable move. It'll be a uh, you know probably a rapid spike. You know, you make the low and it turn right back up, and then you're mm-hmm. like, oh, so what? Uh, mm-hmm. Or they simply don't get it. And I'll tell you this: if they uptick to twelve eighty five. Mm-hmm. It's a fifteen dollar, three five dollar upticks. You're not going through that low, mm-hmm. so the bears got the onus is on them. They better push out that twelve seventy and get down on the twelve sixties quickly. If they don't, uh, this is just a it's just a flat floor down here. Do you think the bears should be paying some attention to the fact that the uh, shares are strong and silver is strong? I mean, might that not well, be something they would be concerned yeah. about? I, don't, I think they should, uh, and we've noticed it a week ago, and, and it continues a little bit surprising uh, uh, into this week, even with gold dropping another $10 from last week. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and yet GDX still is holding rather tough. Uh, it, just, it just indicates to us that something new is going on here. It used to be if gold dropped $5, GDX would uh, you know, drop 2%. <laughs> yeah. and, wow. and now we're not getting that kind of action, and it's more persistent. It's not just one day. It's now a pattern over the last week or two. And well, I, it, it could indicates be, to me that, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to say it could be that if, uh, if we're starting a new bull market and it's a real honest-to-goodness bull market, we might see the shares or silver leading the bullion, the gold bullion, right? Yeah, well, the, the silver has definitely underperformed gold. You know, we know yeah, that for the last couple sure. of years. It's come back and retested its lows, held them, and so forth, at the 1350 area or whatever. Uh, but um, we've got some numbers. I would say this. You get up in the mid-1450s uh, next week, which is, say, about a dime above this week's high. And I think you're going to see some uh, upside action, uh, sharp mm-hmm. upside action. So mm-hmm. it doesn't take much in terms of upticks to get silver out of this hole, and, and not just out of the hole, but moving quickly. Because we've got mm-hmm. some momentum structures overhead that just, just indicate ripeness for turn and with some power. And, uh, and, and gold, meanwhile, is trying to scare us the other way. But it's mainly a price chart-based scare, not a momentum 
validated downside. Right, exactly. And your chart, certainly on the GDX, was just crystal clear last weekend that you put out. Really helped to show, to make that point that uh, at least in the GDX and the shares, uh, there's some real strength there, it seems. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you wouldn't necessarily see that on looking at a price chart, but it, it really looked good from your yeah. uh, momentum. And the tone is definitely different. So I just, I suspect that institutions are moving some money around. They're moving out of the nervous equity markets into oh. a sector that, you know, a Gundlach, for exa- example, I think has argued mm-hmm. the case that it's probably the best place to be on the planet right now is in the gold mining shares. Mm-hmm. Uh, All right. Well, that's... Well, it, it certainly uh, we've you know we've been ba- we've we've been building a base for a number of years here. We've gone nowhere, and uh, I think I've always believed that in order to get the gold shares and the gold bullion market to move up, you got to start to see some new money coming into those sectors. And I could very well be that that's starting to happen. Michael, I want to thank you so much for spending your time with us again. It's always refreshing to hear from you, uh, and we'll look to talk to you again next week, hopefully. Thank you. Dear. All right, folks. We'll. Uh, you know what, now is the time to really be looking at these gold shares, and one that I think is going to really be worth looking at is Klondike Gold, and we're going to be talking to Peter Talman, the CEO of that company, right after the break, so don't go away. We'll be right back with Peter Talman of Klondike Gold. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Nobo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Nobo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Strike Point Gold, trading under SKP on the TSX and STKXF on the OTC, has a market cap of under $10 million. Strike Point is a new player in the Golden Triangle of BC and Canada. Focus will be on drilling the Willoughby Project in 2019. Prior drilling delivered over 20 meters of 25 grams per ton gold and 184 grams per ton silver. Recent receding glaciers have identified new gold targets. Neighboring projects have been acquired by Strike Point's largest shareholder, Ascot, Eric Sprott, and Skeena, round out the other top shareholders. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to tell you that I have Peter Talman with me once again. For those of you who aren't familiar with Peter, he is the president and CEO, and he's the director of Klondike Gold Corp. Uh, he's a very experienced exploration geologist. He's had a great deal of success, having made three discoveries, one in gold, and uh, one in uh, antimony, and one in zinc, I believe. Uh, but right now, he's extremely focused on 
Klondike Gold's huge 55-kilometer-long land package that hosts the load source of millions of ounces of gold, placer gold. It's been mined uh, in the greater Plas- in the Great Placer Gold Rush uh, in the Yukon in, uh, starting in the late 1800s. And in the past, some people have speculated that most of the hard rock-hosted gold had been eroded away into the surrounding streams and creeks. And so until Peter Talman and his team at Klondike came on the scene, there had never been a serious, systematic, scientific approach to exploring and developing what is now understood to be a very deep orogenic deposit that may perhaps host as, I'm just speculating here, may perhaps host as many millions of ounces yet still in the ground as has been mined. Uh, Only God knows, and uh, Peter Talman and his team are going to try to find out as much of that as they can. Um, in addition to covering this story in my newsletter, Klondike Gold, uh, it, this is personally one of my top holdings among uh, junior mining companies, and so I'm really pleased to have Peter with me. Thanks for joining me again, Peter. Uh, it's always a pleasure, Jay. And uh, it is a pleasure, and I know that, you, uh, that you've been working very hard for, now for three years, I believe it is, uh, three plus years on this yeah, project. Four. Four, actually. Time yeah. flies. Uh, time flies, uh, but you've made a great deal of progress. I should start before I, we get into the discussion. Uh, Klondike Gold trades in Toronto under the symbol KG. You can buy it down here in the States, as I have under the symbol KDKGF. I have 107.9 million, call it 108 million shares outstanding. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong about that, Peter. I think you may be doing a, you may have uh, a private placement that might take it up a bit, but uh, that's the latest number I have. That would give it a market cap of about $23 million uh, in U.S. money. Does that sound about right? That's right, yeah. And if we add any more, it won't be severe. Like, anyway, yes. That's, that's yeah, it won't be. Right. Yes, it won't. Yeah, it won't be too bad. And especially, I think, um, uh, if uh, the optimist side of me is right in what I, I'm hoping, thinking, um, that, you, uh, that you will discover up there, but only time, tell, time will tell, of course. And uh, I know that you do a, a very good, honest, hard work and endeavor to uh, not to overstate things. I've, I've seen you operate in a, you're not, uh, well, let's say you're not, you, you are a scientist first and foremost and not a, a, and not a, um, uh, an empty-headed uh, promotional fellow. So that I appreciate about you. Peter, a couple of years ago, as you began exploring the Klondike uh, project, you discovered that there is some disseminated gold outside of the distinct high-grade vein structures uh, from a prospect, from a project perspective, of course, that certainly seemed like good news to to those of us who follow this industry. Because if if you only have narrow, high grade veins, sometimes they're not as economic as if you have some values outside of those those veins. However, in a dull gold market like we've been in, important as dissemination might be to project economics, it doesn't really seem to get the market very excited. Now I understand that you believe that you may have been able to pinpoint the control factors that may uh, allow you to target the structures that host high-grade gold. Can you talk about that a bit? Well, and it's only taken four years. Um, <laughs> yes. I mean, when we first started, I, again, just to recap, there was the prevailing theory was all the gold was eroded and there was none left in the bedrock and the 20 million ounces of gold sitting on the ground that the plaster miners were, were collecting was all that was there. Um, and when we, we took a different view at the beginning and tried, uh, the Klondike is known for high-grade nuggets uh, but, and veins, and nobody had been able to find any of them in the bedrock ever. 
And so we went, maybe we should look for something different, and we get on to this disseminated gold idea, uh, so broad widths of low grade, relatively, call it a gram, and uh, and that's what our you know our number one zone, the, the Lone Star Zone, is is a gram over 100 meters. That that's a drill hole that's wide open. Um, we have a kilometer of that, um, and that's really easy to generate. And, and document ounces. So we've been doing mm-hmm. a resource, you know, building a resource there for the last couple of years. Um, and we did other exploration, and particularly it's a science that you were referring to over the last two years, but in particular last year's work um, showed that there's a, a different fault system, a, a younger orogenic event or a, a younger fault event that seems to be the um, the event that actually introduced the gold into the Klondike in the first place, and absolutely nobody has ever seen or even contemplated that previously, mm-hmm. and that seems to be the control of it. And we also noticed over the work that we did this winter that uh, we have encountered high-grade veins around the property, and they're always adjacent or on one of these new faults. And so, and particularly where they intersect the old faults that we that we identified three or four years ago, mm-hmm. and so we've done a, a lot of modeling, a lot of structural modeling, and gone back and looked at, <laughs> re-looked at our data, and recognized the idea that geez, we have a bunch of high-grade veins sitting at or near surface, within, uh, well, w- within the envelope that we have been exploring, uh, both at Lone Star Nugget and the El Dorado Fault. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we think we have an opportunity to go and hit high-grade veins. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess another another leg on that is that we do we've looked at both the Kamenak, the coffee deposit that Kamenak has, which has it's a lot of it is very similar to our geology and mineralization. And we've also been looking at Pogo over the winter, and Pogo is uh, in Alaska, just over the Yukon border. Um, and that's an 8 million ounce mine. It's been operating for the last 15 years or so. And that's operating, developed on a high-grade vein that runs about half an ounce. Um, and, you know, they've mined 3 or 4 million ounces out of that to date, and they have another 3 or 4 million left to go. And that, the controls to POGO are exactly what we see in our structural modeling and all the other work that we've compiled. And so we think we actually hit the high-grade veins are pogo-like. Mm. And so that rationale has led us to go, you know what, we should go drill these now. Um, and another thing, we've had this uh, from you and many other investors who have said, hey, look, you know, all that low-grade is boring you know, you just keep hitting it, and it's the same. You've been drilling it for a couple of years now. Uh, where's the flashy stuff? Yeah. And so this year, for you investors, <laughs> we're, we actually think we have a handle on the flashy stuff, and we're going to go try to drill that. Well, that's really exciting. I know you've uh, you've talked about a $2 million exploration program, so I guess most of it will be focused on, as you call it, the flashy stuff. Uh, will you be doing some more uh, exploration, though, to try to build that resource and come up with a 40 through 101 sometime, or will that be delayed now that you, especially if you start hitting a bunch of this flashy stuff? Um, I, all of the work I do is designed to get us to a resource estimate. 
Um, and so, I mean, the first six holes we're going to drill are on Gay Gulch, as an example. Uh, mm-hmm. Gay Gulch, we drilled six holes in the, the first one. Well, Six of the first holes I ever drilled in the property, all six hit visible gold, and one hole hit one of these super high-grade veins. It was 420 grams over half a meter and, and, and or 76 grams over three meters. Um, so we're going to try to extend that by drilling in a way that would be useful in a resource estimate. Um, and then we're going to go to Nugget, and we have about 40 holes. So the Nugget fault that you're familiar with, mm-hmm. where we've identified disseminated gold previously, we also have high-grade hits in that, and we're going to basically infill along the Nugget fault mineralization, but target specifically the high-grade sections of it. So again, it's building a resource, even though I'm, you know, it's, it's not in the news headline that we're doing that, yeah. Um, what, what we're trying to do is find high grade near near surface because all the, all these holes, all this mineralization is sitting within 50 meters of surface anyway, um, and see where it goes from there. So yep. it's two objectives, really, and and appreciate this: the disseminated and the high grade are part of the same. So the disseminated, broad widths, low grade, and then these narrow, super high grade oh, sections are part of the same con. They're they're a continuum. Oh, that's so, important. And they, in point in places they overlap, and that's also where we're going to go drill. So I'm, I'm super excited about this year, um, and I think our investors will be finally because they've everyone has always wanted to go and drill the high grade stuff, and now I think we have an opportunity to to hit a bunch of holes and and yeah. Anyway, we'll see. Yeah. Well, now that you've. Uh think that you've narrowed down the uh, the control features. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, some of these high-grade numbers are, are just mind-boggling, really. And, and this is really what you need in this kind of a dull market to get people excited about the stock. But you referred to a 419, almost 420 grams per ton over a half a meter. I'm looking at another one, 336 over about a quarter of a meter. I mean, they're not very wide, but they're really juicy. So if you could include some disseminated gold in and around those those veins, that would be could be really exciting. Um, so, uh, so that's your focus primarily. When will you start drilling, Peter? And how soon might investors start to see some of these drill results uh, come into the public domain? Well, I was originally scheduled to come on next week, as as you know, and I yeah. figured with you, and I figured by then we would be drilling. Um, anyway, we've just started. So uh, the timeline is. Uh, and we have two drills on the property. The first one has just started, and really the the May 24th Canadian holiday long weekend interfered with the drillers. They didn't want to come to work and waste a, a perfectly good long weekend. Um, so first crew is on now. Uh, second crew will arrive next week. Both drills will be turning, and we should have assays by mid-late, I don't, well, I'm saying late July, um, but it might be earlier. We'll, we'll see how the labs are. And, uh, and substantively, all of our assays from the first 60 holes will be, we'll, we should have them by the end of August. Um, and, and so, and all of those, basically, the, well, at least 80% of the 60 holes that we have planned are targeting directly high-grade veins within the low-grade system. 
Wonderful. Well, Peter, I really look forward to following this story. And uh, if you uh, if you want to feed me some information, even though you're not on the show next week, if you have anything to tell us, send it along to me, and I'll make sure that my listeners hear about it in the opening segment of my show next week. So, uh, well, and really I'll, wish I'll make the, the can I make the point of visible gold. All the gold here is visible gold, but reporting it doesn't really help. I, that doesn't mean there's necessarily lots of gold there. It just means that's you're right in the system. So, absolutely. Well, we will we will always make that uh, make sure that caveat is clear to people so that they understand that just because you see a speck of gold doesn't mean you have anything like an economic deposit. So, uh, Peter, thank you yep. so much. Anything else you'd like to add before we conclude today's discussion? No, I, it's going to be an exciting season. I, I'm really looking forward to it, and I look forward to coming back on later and telling everybody how well we did this summer. Oh, I'm really looking forward to that, too. I, of course, have a vested interest in that. So thanks so much for being with us, Peter, and uh, we'll look to do it again soon. Well, folks, don't go away because right after the commercial break, Keith Wiener of Monetary Metals will be with me to tell us how the, uh, well, the old adage that uh, you don't want to own gold because it doesn't provide any returns, any yields. Well, it's not true. Uh, Keith has structured a product, a lease product, where you can actually lease your gold and get a return that I think is probably as good as what you're going to get in uh, U.S. Treasury bills these days. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Keith Wiener. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon Territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike Gold Rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corp. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. Oren Resources is a copper gold exploration company pursuing the world's next major discoveries. It has seven projects, including two active flagships, Committee Bay in northern Canada and Sombrero in southern Peru. This summer will be one of the most exciting times in Oren's history as the company turns the drill at Sombrero for the first time ever. The project's impressive surface results have identified Sombrero as an analog to one of Peru's biggest mines. Oren is also implementing cutting-edge machine learning technology to unlock its highly prospective gold belt at Committee Bay. Visit OrenResources.com and subscribe to keep up with the company's busy year ahead. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. 
Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have Keith Wiener with me once again. Dr. Wiener is the CEO and founder of Monetary Metals. He is an Austrian school economist. In fact, his PhD is in Austrian economics. Uh, so from that aspect alone, Keith fits well into the content of this show. Uh, Keith can talk economic theory until the cows come home, as they say. And I do want to touch on a, on a bit of economic theory but most importantly today, I want to drill down into the practical aspects of how you can defy conventional wisdom that says the reason you don't want to own gold is because you can't earn a return on it. Keith's monetary metals has proven otherwise. In fact, if I understand the monetary metals program, investors can earn pretty much the same return leasing their gold or silver through monetary metals as they can buying U.S. treasuries of a similar one-year duration. Uh, we'll ask Keith about that. but. By the way, I should mention that you can easily access Monetary Metals website by clicking on the Monetary Metals banner located on the right side of uh, my website. That's jtaylormedia.com. You can click on there and you can learn uh, a lot of things. There's a lot of important and uh, interesting information there as well as the practical stuff that we want to talk to Keith about today. Thanks, Keith, for joining me again. Thanks, Thanks for having me on your show. It's really good to have you. As, as I just noted, I want to spend uh, most of the time today to focus on um, on the lease product that Monetary Metals has has uh, generated, has created. Uh, but before we get into the practical aspects of Monetary Metals, I would like to uh, I would like you to provide a quick overview of your views of the U.S. economy and what implication those views have on how you believe uh, people should invest their savings. And so. Correct me if I'm wrong, but judging from an article that you wrote back in April 11th titled Debt and Profit in Russell 2000 Firms, your views are deflationary, at least when using the mainstream's definition of deflation. I I believe you see prices of goods and services declining as well as an inevitable decline in rates of interest that coincides with an increasingly lethargic and depressed economy. Is that a fair characterization of your views of the of the U.S. economy now? That's it. You nailed it. So, um, if fiat so if fiat currency fixed income instruments continue to yield lower interest rates, as you predict, do you see a continued decline in the rates that uh, gold or silver leases pay? Is there any uh, is there any kind of a relationship? Do you think between fiat interest rates and uh, honest money? gold or silver uh, lease rates? I, I don't think there is any connection because each currency has, uh, as, it, as it were, is, is a closed-loop system. Uh-huh. And the interest rate in one does not uh, necessarily, you know, the, all the fiat currencies are going together on this trend um, for other reasons that are way outside the scope of what I can say in, in 30 seconds. No, I don't. I don't think you can push the interest rate to zero in gold for a very simple reason, and that is, gold people are happy to hoard it, and you know hold it close to the vest. And gold will only come out. This is the whole theory behind monetary metals: is interest is the only force that will pull gold out of private hands, out of private hoards, and into the market. And mm-hmm. somebody has to get a sufficient interest rate. Otherwise, it's just you know it's good enough. To hold your gold and keep it private. So if I say to you, Jay, you know, lend me your gold at zero percent, you're going to say no, and you're going to say I don't have any gold anyway. What gold? If I say well one percent, maybe yes, maybe no. If I say two percent, three percent, there's some line 
assuming assuming it's not a scam and you know you trust me, there's some line that will um, when we cross the line, you'll say okay. And if you go below that line, then you become the marginal gold lender who pulls back and says no. Sure. Well, I, I can just think that you know right now, since most people are still thinking in dollars, the dollar is the world's reserve currency. It's the currency uh, that people most of the, around the world want to own. Uh, they're, they're, they may be looking at T-bills and saying a one-year T-bill has given me, I don't know what it's given, 2% 2, 2 or something like that, or that I can get 2 or 3% in an almost equally safe uh, lease. So we want to get into that um, and find out what the risks are, what the rewards are, and, and the practical aspects. So let's talk about that. Now, you pay... You pay out interest on gold, and it's paid in gold ounces. And how are you able to generate interest on gold? Just explain that to our listeners. So there are a variety of businesses that are using gold as inventory or work in progress in some productive way and uh, are willing to pay for the privilege of having the gold. One way or the other, they have to finance their inventory. So um, you know, I can use two examples. Um, I think our first lessee, which we still have uh, uh, in our in the roster, is a company called Val Orum. And uh, some of your listeners may be familiar with the Orum product. It's this gold currency unit. It's a little bigger than a dollar bill. It is made of two clear layers of plastic with a very thin foil of gold sandwiched in between. Mm-hmm. And that um, that's available uh, and down as small as one-tenth of one gram, which if you tried to make that into a bar would be so small you'd lose it in the lint in your pocket. I mean, it wouldn't be practical to have a one-tenth mm-hmm. of one gram bar. Mm-hmm. But because this is something the size of a dollar bill and you can fold it and crumple it and stick it in your wallet, uh, you know, it's a convenient uh, product for very small um, denominations of gold. So in the manufacturing of that, they use this uh, process called sputtering. And um, uh, the bottom line is the sputtering tool can only consume part of the gold bar that's put into the machine. It blasts, you know, I think it's electrons at the bar to cause the gold to go flying off. It becomes ionized and impregnates in the plastic. So that machine um, always has a certain amount of gold in it that cannot be consumed. So we, we lease that gold to them. Mm-hmm. If they weren't leasing it from us, they would have to borrow the cash from a bank. Um, and then, of course, they'd be paying interest on it. Plus, they would have the problem of hedging. And so uh, I, I guess the, the, short, the very short answer to your question is, Whenever a business needs capital and is obliged to pay some sort of interest, unless you're in the terminal death rows of um, a failing fiat currency regime like Switzerland or Germany, where um, interest rate goes negative, but aside from that pathological end case, uh, and if you want somebody's capital, you got to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And so there are businesses that need gold capital and, and uh, are willing to pay for it, and that's... Um, that's the, that's the magic special sauce of uh, what we do. All right. So I, I think you've answered one of my uh, next questions is why would they not just simply buy the gold themselves? You're saying they would, uh, I guess they could do that. They could, if they have extra cash on hand, they could go out and buy the gold. But what you're saying is if they have to go out and borrow, because it's short term, right? It's a short term trade uh, credit that they would be using in a bank. They go out and borrow. They have to pay interest on that which may or may not be higher than the interest they put, but they have the hedging issue that they have to worry about. So those are the reasons, I guess, why they wouldn't buy the gold themselves, right? 
Well, yeah, well, there's two things that need to be said. One is gold is very expensive. Doesn't, you know, a small amount of inventory is a large amount of dollars. Yeah. So, you know, if, if it's not that much inventory to say, you know, a million dollars. A million dollars of gold is a pretty small pile of gold. You know, you easily put that on your desktop. Um, sure. If you borrow, if you borrow a million dollars and buy a million dollars worth of gold, and the price of gold were to go down ten percent, which it could, um, you have only nine hundred thousand dollar asset, but you still owe a million dollars to the bank. Right. Your bank. So um, that, that's that's an extreme risk. So you know, yes, businesses can use their own. Um, capital to to to, uh, to buy their inventory, but typically there's only a small amount of capital, um, and you know it doesn't scale. So that's great for mom and pop coin shop where, where they know that they need you know 50 ounces of gold eagles under the counter, and um, you know there's only so many people that are going to walk in off Main Street and buy a coin on any given day, and they can call their supplier and get you know new stock within 48 hours or whatever it is. But if you're trying to build a, a larger business, you know, your own personal stash doesn't really scale. Okay. Um, so does the lessee uh, company receive the metal? Like, explain a little bit how the mechanics of this work. So the, the lessee company, do they receive the metal? In other words, where does my gold or silver go when I lease it? So um, good question. Um, some, in some cases... The lessee, if they're a bullion dealer, may actually want the specific form of metal that the lessor, the investor, has provided. Um, so that's sort of a happy coincidence if that happens. We have had that occur. But typically, the lessee is looking for something in a different form. So in the case of Valorum, they need a specialty manufactured. It's called a sputtering target. And it has very exacting dimensions, and it's bonded to a copper carrier that goes into the sputtering tool so um all they all they really need is the gold value and so the lease inception is done by uh, by a swap so we have the least amount let's say it's a thousand ounces they need a thousand ounces so we arrange you know for them to buy the thousand ounces you know through their through their supplier we sell the thousand ounces wire them the cash but then we take over ownership uh, you know, the title to um, the gold that they've just uh, purchased is all done at the same price. Every, you know, every, all the transactions are locking the same price mm-hmm. at the same time, and it's, a, it's basically it's a swap. Okay, it's basically a swap. So, if I so if I were to lease my gold or silver, am I I'm still the owner? Then is that the way that works, Keith? I'm a right, lessor, so I still retain title. That's right. The, the key to the whole thing is you still own it. Our legal structure is a true lease. It's really conceptually no different than if you had a um, you know used car, and um, you know some you know you happen to know somebody who needs a car, and then he says, "Okay, I'll pay you two hundred dollars a month to lease that." It's still your car, but you give him the keys and say, "Okay, let's sign this." You know, you download from one of those you know legal websites a little form that says, "I'm leasing you a car for whatever year." Let's say it's still your car. Um, that's, you know, the same, the same thing in gold. The only wrinkle is that gold is fungible. Uh, and so it isn't necessarily the same physical atoms that comprise the bit of gold that's in the less these hands versus the ones that you, um, you know, hand it over. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, legally, um, there's a lot of legal precedents for this, by the way, that was created 
uh, in the 19th century with green elevators. You know, farmers, um, you know, at the harvest time, deposit green into the green elevator, and, and then uh, later, you know, they have the right to withdraw it. And there was actually litigation. Uh, some farmer thought that he had the right to this very, very specific green that he had deposited, which the green elevator no longer had because they buy and sell and buy and sell and buy and sell, and the green turns over. And that was actually litigated, and um, the, the courts, thankfully, uh, for the green industry as well as the gold industry, the courts recognize that green is fungible, and if you put in, you know, 100 bushels, then the next 100 bushels are you know, equivalent, um, and the same thing is true for gold. Keith, we own gold because it's safe. Uh, you know, we own a lot of risky assets, uh, stocks and bonds and things like that. But we we own gold because we consider it to be very safe. What could go wrong if? What are the risks to me if I lease my gold? And and by the way, we're leasing it through uh, monetary metals, right? Yeah. So um, the structure is you, know, you lease to monetary metals, uh, and uh, monetary metals has your express written consent to sublease it to whichever the the company is in that particular deal. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's a risk that um, the gold could you know, disappear or be stolen. Um, you know, we say in every slide deck we have, there's no such thing as a yield without some sort of risk. Sure. You know, anybody promising you risk-free returns is probably committing fraud. Um, so it's our job to understand at the level of the mechanics exactly, you know, first of all, who the lessee is, um, where, they, where their premises are, uh, what the physical security is, what the, the internal controls are, which employees would have access to what, and so forth, how the gold is going to move and be processed, um, you know, and so forth. Um, so, for instance, in this, uh, in this alarm deal, where I said the machine cannot physically consume, uh, um, uh, it's about two-thirds of the, if I recall, uh, it's about two-thirds of the bar cannot be consumed. You know, we wanted to you know, verify with engineers that understand that tool what the physical parameters are, what the physical limitations of the tool are. To understand that, no, you can't keep sputtering it. That's the limitation. The tool has to shut down at that point. Um, and then we, um, in addition to that, we devised a set of... So their goal is to lock down the gold and control it as tight as we possibly can and yet allowing just enough room for the business to operate whatever it needs to do, um, you know, without binding up, because if we don't, if we can't allow them to operate, there's no point for them to lease it. But we want to lock it down as tight as we can otherwise, and because the more that we lock it down, obviously the less risk there is of the gold. And then we present that to the investors in a slide deck and say, here's here's the mechanics, here's what we've done to lock it down, here's the insurance situation. Um, you know, we carry a, a second layer of insurance that covers monetary metals and our investors in case the lessee's insurance doesn't pay out. So that's typically, you know, your cases of fraud, embezzlement, misappropriation, breach of contract, and so forth. Um, a really important point here, talking about this lease structure, is a loan, uh, um, most people don't really understand this, and you see in the gold community all this discussion of banking. When you loan money, uh, or, or fiat currency for that matter, to somebody, that becomes an asset that goes on their balance sheet, and then they mark a corresponding liability also on their balance sheet. Right. If they if they declare bankruptcy, 
you become a creditor and the creditors may get, you know, 42 cents on the dollar. Who knows? In a lease, it is not an asset. It does not go on their balance sheet and they do not have a liability. They simply have your property, the return of which they are legally you know, obliged. So if they declare bankruptcy, leased property does not become an asset that can be liquidated for the benefit of the creditors. You are not given a number and told to stand in line with the other creditors. Mm-hmm. Leased property is yours and you simply repossess it. <clears throat> so, you know, if, if you lease a car, you buy a car from GM and you lease it, if you declare personal bankruptcy, GM's just going to take the keys back. Yes. Off. It's their car. It's not yours. Yeah, if exactly. you buy a car, uh, actually, even if you buy a car, they're still a secured lender. Uh, so it's a little bit different. But in the case of the lease, that's a major thing that we do to protect the investor is that if there's an honest bankruptcy, I'll put an asterisk on that when we return to that. If there's an honest bankruptcy, the leased property is not lost uh, just because they've gone bankrupt. Now, the asterisk is two things. One, we do not want to lease or any transaction with somebody that we think is close to bankruptcy. It's a bad place to be. You don't want to be there. Um, number two, of course, especially in smaller companies, <clears throat> mom and pop jewelry stores are notorious for this. Um, when they go bankrupt, they end up selling everything down to the fixtures and fittings in their store. And by the time the lenders get wind of it, you know, you're down to a little bit of carpet on the floor with a few holes in it, and that's it. You know, everything has been stripped bare. And so there's, there's dishonest bankruptcy where they sell everything that even isn't theirs in order to um, stave off the inevitable. And so we look for companies that have enough size that they have sufficient internal controls and processes if you lease to a real corporation that has internal controls and they go bankrupt, it doesn't mean that, you know, everything is sold to make payroll for another two weeks. All right, Keith, can you give a, quickly give us an example of a low risk transaction that you might have done and one that might be a little higher, uh, higher risk? And then what are the uh, interest rates paid on those two respective transactions? So I'll, I'll speak in general terms. Um, because I, w- I want to be very mindful of, you remember the old E.F. Hutton commercials? When I say, you know, when E.F. Hutton speaks, you know, everyone listens. Yes. And I, I don't want to be E.F. Hutton. Everyone knows, you know, I studied the 19th century and gold banking and all this stuff. I don't want to bias the market. And while well, Keith said the interest rate should be X, it'd be like putting my, my fingers on the scales, which I don't want to do. But in general terms, we have leases where the gold is physically, in the custody of, let's say, Brinks uh, or, you know, responsible third-party custodian in monetary metals name um, with a, um, uh, a tri-party agreement between us, the lessee, and Brinks um, that, you know, allows the lessee to operate, but it's in our name and it's in, let's say, Brinks' custody. And so that's a pretty low-risk structure, especially with their computer systems and other controls that employees of the lessee couldn't just make a mistake and send the gold out. So when we've had deals like that, the um, the net net rate to investors uh, seems to be about two about two percent. Um, so if you put in so what that means is if you put in a hundred ounces of gold at the end of the year you have one hundred and two ounces. Mm-hmm. That's when we say two percent, we literally mean that. Mm-hmm. Um, we've done uh, another lease, well, I guess it's probably no secret that happens to be in the jurisdiction of Malaysia. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a few other things that um, 
uh, you know, a few others are warts on the deal or hair on the deal, and the interest rate to investors is 4.5%. Uh-huh. If you put in 100 ounces, at the end of the year, you get back 104.5 ounces. Uh-huh. So that's kind of, our, kind of our range. And these are one-year leases, are they? Yes. Only one-year leases. I think it's important. There's another really important point to differentiate the gold standard from, you know, people call it fiat money standard, but I call it irredeemable currency, and that is redeemability. I think it's really, really important that every creditor have frequent opportunities to renew the credit that they've extended. Now, at least it's not really credit, but I think the analogy applies here, and decide if they want to um, continue um you know, to renew for another year or whether they want their metal back. And everything in our world today, you know, you see these bonds and they're called toggle bonds and, you know, payment and kind bonds and all these things where essentially it's designed for the creditor never really to get their money back. The only way you get your money back as a creditor is by selling the instrument to the next creditor. But the, um, you know, the borrower is like a ratchet. All they do is borrow and then they borrow more and they borrow more after that and they borrow more after that so in our in our leasing we feel that a one-year maturity is enough to give the company you know the 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 safety to know they've got it for a year but to give the investors the latitude that hey if you need it back if life circumstances change you know, you've got a, a reasonable renewal period okay keith we're just about out of time uh how do i fund the count do i send do i have to send the metal in somewhere to uh, uh to where do um, i send it um so we have um, depository partners um, around the world, both in the U.S. and in Asia and down here in, in Sydney. Um, or uh, if somebody has dollars and they want to participate. So some people have gold and they decide they don't want to send us their stash, but they're willing to increase their portfolio allocation to gold now that we've solved Buffett's, you know, Buffett's the, the Buffett objection to gold is it doesn't pay interest. Now the gold pays interest, they increase their portfolio allocation. And so through a partner, we can actually sell the, the client new gold to participate. Um, you know, obviously, these are details that if you are interested, talk to us and one of our relationship managers will guide you through the process. Yeah, indeed. Uh, Addison Qualley, who is a friend of mine, I know he works for you. And uh, Addison is always available to answer questions, I, I believe. So uh, people should go to uh, my website and uh, you can click on the Monetary Metals banner and connect uh, that way. Uh, do I have to pay uh, to store the metal, Keith? No, we we cover all the storage costs because uh, you know this is this is not a program intended for long-term storage. This is a program where the metal is sitting there, pending to be deployed and, and start earning interest. So we cover the storage costs for that um, for that duration. How often are you coming out with products with new leases? It's at an accelerating uh, pace. So we had one that closed, uh, um, I want to say earlier in, in May, maybe it was the end of April. Um, and now the next one just opened um, on Friday last week. Mm-hmm. So uh, they're getting closer and closer together. We have an increasing flow of lessees. You know, it's, it's, it's a funny thing when you have capital. Um, they do, you know, they do beat a, beat a path to your door. Uh, if you're an entrepreneur and you've invented a better mousetrap, it's not necessarily true. You know, the movie Field of Dreams, if we build it, they will come. It's rubbish. That's terrible advice for an entrepreneur. But um, if you're giving out money, uh, they actually do. 
Okay, just uh, real quickly, how can I trust you guys? Do you have any other uh, third-party valid- validations that you can provide for our listeners? Um, you know, we have a variety of things. Obviously, with the testimonials of our lessees. Um, we have um, you know partnerships with some of the leading uh, vaults. Um, we are not audited yet, but um, by the end of 2019, uh, plan to get into a regular uh, audit cadence as well. All right. Okay, very good. We'll have to leave it go at that, Keith, because we are out of time. Thank you so much for coming on again and, and talking to us about uh, about this uh, new innovative product. And uh, we'll have to have you back again sometime in the not-too-distant future to, to update us and maybe get into more detail of some of the products that uh, you are providing. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, folks, that is, uh, that is all the time we have for this week. Uh, next week, my main guest will be Dan Oliver of Mermican Capital, as well as Dr. Quentin Henning of Novo Resources. He'll be with us. Also, uh, I do expect I, Michael Oliver once again as well. And so until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 